All right. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Romans chapter 12, it is our goal to finish out the chapter today. And so that's the goal. Um, And we'll see if we can accomplish that. As we've been working through that, we're going to pick up in verse 9. And so uh, we're going to look at the love of Christ in the life of a living sacrifice. All of this is Paul's explanation of the verses coming out of uh, the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 and 2, that we are to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. It's our reasonable, it's our logical act of worship. And so if we're going to put ourselves in the altar, and as we do that, we're going to see that we're going to have a renewed mind, and uh, we're going to do that through a repentant heart. And what that does is gives us a really good picture of who we really are, so we become an unassuming, humble people who have been given a unity in the body and gifts to be used in all different areas. And so as we use out our gifts and as we are a unified body of believers, being a living sacrifice, the love of Christ then begins to flow through our life. And so we're going to look at the love of Christ in the life of a living sacrifice. When I was younger, I liked to stay up late. Now that I'm older, I don't like to stay up late as much. It's just overrated. And so about, about 930, I'm like, all right, well, that was a good day. All right, see you later. Uh, but I used to stay up late, and when I stayed up late, I'd watch late-night television, and uh, one of my favorite things was the top ten list with David Letterman, right? And that was, uh, that was like good comedy. No, I'm the only one. Okay, that's cool. You know, so uh, he would do a top ten list, and so the top ten list was always timely. It was always funny. And so I think Paul kind of right here, as we can get into this, is about to give you a top ten list of what it's like to live, the, live out the Christian life. And so I'm going to do my best to not only have three points like I normally do, but to have ten points this morning. Oh, I heard you groan. You groan. Oh. All right, so that means I need to go fast. But I will warn you, the first point is longer than all the other points. Okay, so you're going to be like, are you serious? You're going to take this much time. It's not going to be that much time. Okay, so let's read God's Word, starting in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Pray, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, by, by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it gives us practical application. Father, lead and guide us. But most of all, fill us with the love of Christ that then is just poured out of our lives to your church and to those around us in the community. In Christ's name, amen. 
Number one, top ten list. Ready? The love of Christ in the life of a believer loves genuinely. Sounds so easy. Loves genuinely. Let love be genuine. If we don't get this one, we won't get any of them. So it all begins with a genuine love. A genuine or sincere love means unhypocritical. It means that we don't wear a mask. It means we don't put on a show that our love is actually a love that is genuinely there. So we're not to come in here. We're not to come into a church and put on a mask and say, all right, let me act like I love other people. We are to genuinely love one another. So our behavior towards one another should be like that of people in a family that genuinely care for one another. This is not that we cover up our actual feelings with a Christian veneer and go through all the Christian motions, but we are to authentically express a Christ-like love in the way that we correspond with one another. The love of Christ in the life of a believer compels us to genuinely love people because we genuinely love God. I want, I want us to understand that if we genuinely love God in a sacrificial love of what He's done for us, not in a selfish love of what we can gain from Him, then we will naturally also genuinely love other people. And this is what Scripture teaches us over and over and over. In fact, in Matthew 22, 36 through 40, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? Maybe you're familiar with this. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends the law and the prophets. Jesus says, listen, if you want to get it, it's all about a Christ-like love. It's genuine love for God that then flows out horizontally as a genuine love for others. But if you have a selfish love, uh, what can I get out of this relationship love? Then that's exactly the type of love that you will then portray to others around you. What can I get out of this relationship? goes on, John 13, 34 through 35, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The call of a Christ-like love is for us to love one another in a way that is then a witness to everyone else of the true change that has taken place, that we are transformed. Why do people love each other so much in the church? It's a Christ-like love that then treats other people as family, as as uh, we love one another because Christ has first loved us. John 15, 12 through 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus then takes it to the next step and says, all right, this genuine love is a Christ-like love that then we see in the, in the life of Christ, that we are to love others the way he has loved us. And how has Christ loved us? He gave up his life for us. He was sacrificial. He came and served rather than to be served. And so we are to be a people who genuinely love because we treat other people the way they need to be treated. We serve them. We love them. And if you've walked in the, the lobby, you might have noticed 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. As the church continues to gather in fellowship, it continues to grow in a genuine love. It grows in a love that helps us pursue holiness and righteousness rather than to be self-seeking and sinful. And so, as it says, love covers a multitude of sins. Yet, the love of Christ is what covers us. But yet, we as a body of Christ, living out that love to one another, then shows people how we can surrender to Christ. So, if you have your Bibles, flip over one book, 1 Corinthians Chapter 13, it's the love chapter. Everyone knows the love chapter. 
And uh, you might have heard it read or, or used in a wedding. I know I've used it in a wedding. It's just a great passage about love, even though it's not really talking about a wedding. It's talking about how you relate to one another in the body of Christ. And so Paul's going to give this. This is what the definition of a Christ-like love is. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Let me stop right there. As we've talked about being a living sacrifice, putting ourselves on the altar and what it looks like, Paul gets to this point and says, listen, you can, you can have all these gifts. You can even sacrifice all that you have. You can even sacrifice your life. But if you miss the point of a Christ-like love being in you and then through you, you've missed the whole point. You've gone to more of a religious understanding of what I need to do. I need to be sacrificial. I need to stop doing this. I need to stop doing this. But if you've if you've overlooked the love part, you're just a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. You've missed the point of the life that Christ has brought us in. So love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. This love that is described here in 1 Corinthians is the agape love. It is a caring, self-sacrificing commitment which shows itself to seek the highest good of those around it. It is an unconditional and sacrificial love. Agape love compels us to love one another sacrificially rather than to seek what we can get out of the person. Agape love is a love of choice, the love of serving with humility not a love motivated by superficial appearances, emotional attractions, or sentimental relationships. Listen, it's a love of choice. And oftentimes, our definition of love has more to do with superficial appearances, emotional attractions, and sentimental relationships than it does the fact that I'm going to choose to love you even if I get nothing in return. This is the Christ-like love. So the love of Christ and the life of a believer loves whether it gets anything in return or not. That is a difficult definition of love. So this sacrificial love is patient. It means it's got a long wick. It burns for a long time. It doesn't just blow up. As we interact with one another in, in the body of Christ, do you know that we're, to have, we're not to have a short fuse with one another? How often, though, someone can rub us the wrong way or say something the wrong way or offend us and we blow up and we're like, oh, I'm done. That's not a Christ-like love. A Christ-like love has a long fuse. It's not going to go off anytime soon. A sacrificial love is kind. It is actively engaged in doing good for others. As the body of Christ interacts with one another genuinely, we're always seeking to do good for one another. A sacrificial love is not envious or boastful. In fact, it loves for others to get things that even we may not have. As William Barclay says, there's two kinds of envy. The one covets the possessions of, of other people, and such envy is very difficult to avoid because it's our very human nature. The other is worse. It is 
one that grudges the very fact that others should have something that we have not. It does not so much want the thing for itself, but it wishes the other person didn't have it either. Um, it, it reminds me of that where you grit your teeth and you gnar your teeth and you say, I'm so happy for you right now, right? It's, that's not the kind of love. Sacrificial love is not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not pushy. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. In fact, it's not in it for itself. It's not irritated when things don't go its way. Wow. Think about the relationships we have. Sometimes we get so irritable and so agitated and so, so rude when things don't go the way we want them to go in a relationship. Sacrificial love doesn't keep score. It doesn't keep a mental list of pros and cons. It doesn't keep a balance sheet of right and wrong. It doesn't say, well, I've been doing all this. What have you been doing? Sacrificial love hates sin and loves truth. It's an agape love that's from God, so how can it, how can it love sin? Sacrificial love is a lasting commitment. Ray Pritchard said this, how can we live this way? How can we truly love without envy, without a quick temper, without seeking our own interest, and without thinking evil of others? The answer is, we can't. In ourselves, we have no power to live this way. That's why it doesn't work to say, let's give it the old college try and really get out there and love everyone we meet. We will never talk ourselves into loving like this. And the sooner we can admit that fact, the better off we'll be. This isn't some kind of rah-rah competition where you try to prove your love by your enthusiasm. He says, I also think it helps to replace the word love with the word Jesus in this passage. Because Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus thinks no evil. Jesus is not quick-tempered. Jesus does not rejoice in what is evil. In fact, to love like this, we just simply need more Jesus. The love of Christ and the life of a believer will strive for obedience to God, but a self-serving love will struggle with obedience to God. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In fact, a lot of times we struggle in our relationship with God to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because we're in it for ourselves. And then we struggle with obedience. But if we're in it because of what God has done for us, what he's done, that we are a living sacrifice. And we live out that love for him in the way that we treat other people. So there was number one. Top ten list. I told you we're going to go fast, right? The love of Christ in the life of a believer hates evil and holds to what is good. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, holding fast to what is good. Paul tells us that the love of Christ is evident in the life of a believer by what they hate. By what they hate. The things that God calls evil, the love of Christ hates. And it clings to what God calls as good. Why is this so important, you ask? Well, because when we talk about love, sometimes we get so wrapped up in the feelings of love and the emotions of love that we begin to trend towards a self-satisfying love that will distort good and evil because it, it feels so good. How can that be wrong? How can, how can, I mean, how can it be wrong? How, let's start making some excuses for it because this, is, this feels good, so it has to be right. But the love of Christ does not approve of sin. 
Sometimes, in fact, our love that we say we have for others is so self-motivated that we actually don't love that person as much as we like being liked by that person. We are to abstain from every form of evil. So he says you need to abhor it. You need to find sin horrifying. This is that time of year where uh, we all watch horror movies. Just kidding, you better not. (laughs) You should be horrified at sin, right? You should be horrified. You should cling to what is good. Cling to it. It's like a marriage term. I'm, I'm committed to this. I'm committed to what is good. The love of Christ in us does not lead a person to do something evil. The love of Christ does not lead you to do something evil. The love of Christ does not encourage someone else to do something evil. The love of Christ does not overlook evil in the lives of those that they love. A Christ-like love abhors what is evil and clings to what is good. Isaiah 50.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put Darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In fact, woe to you who accept evil in the name of a self-satisfying love. The church must hate what God hates and love what God loves. Number three, the love of Christ in the life of a believer is affectionate and caring. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The love of that we have for one another in the church is to be the same kind of love that we should experience in our home. And I say should because I know everyone comes from different family backgrounds, but the, the, the family background that you should come to is the fact that when you step in your home, you are family. Blood is thicker than water at that point, am I right? And so you are, you are in it together, and when you step in your home, you don't have to wear a mask. You don't have to pretend, pretend to be something you're not. You're loved simply because of who you are. And so as you look at the life of the church, when you step in the doors, you don't have to put on a mask. You should be able to come in with all your wrinkles and warts and, and scars from all the things that have happened in your life, and you say, this is me. And the church says, you're my brother, and you're my sister, and you are welcome here just the way you are. That's the type of love that we experience. This is why church cannot be a place that you attend. It has to be a people to whom you belong. And listen, our culture and, and the way that we are situated in this world, it, it is all about the show in a lot of cases. It is, it is what was so enticing about that. Oh, I love that church. Did you, did you see the light show? It was amazing. Did you see the fog? I couldn't get over it. Uh, you know, I, this, is, this is what we do. It's very much a consumeristic idea of, man, I loved that. You, you want to love church? Find a place where you are family. Find a place where you're family, where you can walk in wounded from the week and know that there's going to be someone to put their arm around you. Not just a good entertainment show. It's not just Christian consumerism. It is a place where you belong because we are brothers and sisters under one father. And so we honor one another. That means we treat others as valuable. As you walk in, you're valuable. Do you know that? You're valuable. You're valuable in God's eyes, and you're valuable in your brother's and sister's eyes. You're valuable. You're valuable to the church. So let's do a little application here. You're going to love this. Our church is full of people that you don't know. Am I right? 
Oh, y'all got uncomfortable. <laughs> and I would say, you would say, I don't know who they are. I love them, okay? I love them generally. I don't really know them, but I generally love them. Well, instead of generally loving people in this church, why don't we genuinely love people in this church? And you can't genuinely love someone in this church unless you know that someone in this church, so I'm going to ask you to stand up. Oh, yeah, let's go. This is that interaction part of the sermon that everyone loves. It happens once a year, okay? I want to give you a couple of minutes, and I want you to look around at the people sitting around you. I want you to shake hands, and I want you to look people in the eye and say, hey, I may not know you, but I love you. Let's go. All right. I think you're enjoying this way too much. Just kidding. Brotherly love takes effort. All right. You can take your seat again because I've got 85 more points to get through. Church can be a great place. This is what Dave Egner says. Church can be a great place to get caught up on the latest football scores. Yeah, the latest family news, health concerns, or just visit with friends, a place to have a cup of coffee together, a warm handshake, a friendly pat on the back, or a holy high five, right? These are all social interactions we need as human beings. All of this is good, but New Testament fellowship goes much deeper than merely socializing when we get together at church. It takes place when we consider how to lift up one another how to build up one another, how to brighten up our brothers and sisters in Christ. The Bible clearly says that we are to serve one another. We are to forgive as we have been forgiven. We are to bear one another's burdens. And from the first century, believers have gathered in Jesus' name to consider how to stir up one another to faith and good works and exhort one another. Christian fellowship takes place when we offer encouragement to our friends. We pray for them. We confess our sins and our weaknesses to them and to one another. These are the elements that make a genuine fellowship. So what about your church? Is it mere socializing or do you practice true Christian fellowship? Number four, the love of Christ in the life of a believer serves zealously. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. The love of Christ in the life of a believer is not a lukewarm or indifferent life when it comes to the church. In fact, the word slothful means to be slow or hesitant to engage in something worthwhile. It means to possibly have a lack of ambition for the things that are good. Paul is warning us against an attitude that seeks to get by with as little effort as possible when it comes to the life of the church. And in some regards, that's what happens. Oh, I love the church, but we cannot fall into a slothful mindset of, when it, of what it looks like to serve in the church. We must find it our duty as Christians filled with the love of Christ to press into the kingdom of God and to make it our main business of expanding the kingdom of God. 
In fact, the love of Christ and the life believer is the fuel for ministry and missions. The love of Christ is the fuel for ministry and missions. It's not just the need that's out there. It's the love of Christ that compels us to minister to one another and to go on missions. As, as much as you love Christ, go and serve in the kingdom. Number five, the love of Christ in the life of believer is steady in a faith that shows hospitality. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Right now, in any circumstance that you're in, rejoice in hope. Find joy in the promised assurance of our salvation and justification in Christ. Hope is not wishful thinking in the definition of Scripture. It is an assurance that we have in Christ. That there is now, at this point in your life, if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation and there will be no separation. This is what we can rejoice in no matter what is happening in our life, that Christ has paid our debt in full and he has cleansed us and he has filled us with his righteousness. Amen? That's a reason to hope. Be patient in tribulation. Hang in there. Even when it's difficult. Even when sin has come crouching at your door. Hang in there. Be patient with God and see what he's doing to work out his Work out things for his glory. Be patient in tribulation and pray constantly. Maintain an ongoing dialogue between you and the Father by the, the presence of the Holy Spirit and by the intercession of his Son, Jesus Christ, that you always have access to take all things to him, whether in times of rejoicing or in times of tribulation and sadness. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Verse 13. There's two practical ways we can show genuine love. Two practical ways. Generosity and hospitality. You think about how to interact with those in the body of Christ. Generosity, hospitality. Generosity literally means sharing your goods, sharing your money, sharing your finances, your resources. Hospitality, sharing your home. Bringing in and welcoming the stranger. In fact, our generosity is directly related to how genuinely we love. Our generosity is a direct connection to how genuine we are in our love. 1 John 3, 16-18 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainties of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Number six, the love of Christ in the life of a believer blesses instead of curses. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. 
Tim Keller says, we are to forgive each other. Not only are we not to pay each other back, we are to positively, to positively put ourselves out to build up those who have hurt us. In fact, Paul tells believers to speak well of those who mistreat you. Speak well of those who sin against you. Speak well of those who harm you. How difficult is it to not curse? And I don't mean just bad words. <laughs> I mean to say bad things about people. Matthew 5:44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luke 6, 27 through 28, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. These are the words of Christ. And this is the very life of Christ. He loved his enemies. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, he blessed us. He didn't curse us. 1 Peter 2, 21-25 For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. Bless and do not curse. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. When we curse others with our words, it really divulges what's in our heart. When we say things about someone who's wronged us and we want to get back at them and we want to lower them down with our words, we just are really showing what's in our heart. When we do that, we defame others and we destroy our witness. Do you know that there are people listening to the way that Christians talk in community? As you gather around at your workplace, as you walk through the grocery stores, people are listening to the words that are coming out of our mouths. And we may not be saying bad words, but are we tearing people down? Are we cursing people? People are listening to that, and it, it's a witness in how we talk about even those that persecute us and seek to harm us. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, says, How absurd is it that those who use their tongue in prayer and praise should ever use them for cursing, slandering, and the like. If we bless God as our Father, it should teach us to speak well of and kindly to all who bear His image. Love of Christ in the life of a believer, number seven, has empathy and compassion. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. The love of Christ in the life of a believer is a life that comes alongside others in both good times and bad. It's one of the most beautiful things about the church 
is that we can rejoice with those who rejoice and we can weep with those who weep. You're actively engaged in a compassionate way with those around you. Hodge's commentary on Romans says, Love produces not only the forgiveness of enemies, but a general sympathy in the joys and sorrows of our fellow men, and especially in the fellowship of Christians. The disposition here enjoined is the very opposite of a selfish, indifferent attitude that's all about its own interest. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. This is where I would say our church has been. As I even made the announcement earlier and just talked about how grace-filled of a church you've been, this is it. We've lived in harmony with one another. Tony Marita says, To live in harmony means working through conflict, misunderstanding, miscommunication, and wounds. Wow. Wow. Our church has been living in harmony with one another. Through those awkward conversations, gracious interactions, and repentance, reconciliation, and harmony are experienced. Harmony takes hard work, humble work, and heart work. This is the beauty of the church family who gathers gathers together, not for some religious show, but for a relational sanctification. We strive for harmony with one another. Number eight, the love of Christ in the life of a believer is peaceable, not revengeful. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The only way to overcome evil is not to return evil. The only way to overcome evil is to not return evil. When you seek to repay evil with evil, we seek to again live by the flesh and operate in the flesh, not in grace and not in the spirit. You've heard of the old uh, saying, it's time to bury the hatchet. I'm I'm just young enough that I had to look up the meaning of that. Okay, I'm just that young. So um, I looked it up, and so it means to not throw hatchets at each other anymore. And uh, D.L. Moody said this, those who say... They will forgive, but can't forget, simply bury the hatchet, but leave the handle out for immediate use. The church needs to be forgiving in a way that says, I no longer will hold this against you, ever. I will not dig it up. I will not bring it up. You are forgiven as I have been forgiven. Aren't you glad that God doesn't bring up all the things that we've done from the past after we've asked for forgiveness? This is the life of the love of Christ, and the life of a believer. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I want you to hear this. The truth is some relationships are irreconcilable. Sometimes reconciliation isn't possible because reconciliation takes two. And if the other party is not willing to reconcile or repent or relinquish their flesh and their evil and their hurtful ways, then... We can and we must forgive, but we can't always have fellowship. In fact, some relationships may be so dangerous that if you have anything to do with that person, it is to invite them to sin continually against you. 
In that case, the only good and peaceable thing you can do for them and for yourself is to stay away and to strive for peace and harmony. And unfortunately, many of us have those relationships from our past where we've had to forgive, but also separate in order to not continue in sin. Number nine, the love of Christ and the life of a believer gives without withholding. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by, doing, by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Paul reminds us that the love of Christ meets the needs of others. The love of Christ meets the needs of others, even the needs of our enemies. Now, by doing so, we will show the love of Christ. And the goal would be that the love of Christ would draw them to repentance. This is a metaphor, the burning conviction that would be placed on their head, that they would burn until they repented. You see, I've never heard a case where being unloving and withholding from someone in need has ever led them to Christ. Have you? Have you ever heard of a Christian saying, you know what? I'll show them. Has that ever led them to having a deeper walk with the Lord? No, it's loving our enemies. It has been the church's witness to love and to care for those who were even persecuting them in the past that has led others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I did it. Number 10. The love of Christ in the life of a believer overcomes evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the outcome. You start the chapter with being a living sacrifice, and if you are a living sacrifice, and it's your reasonable act of worship, it's your logical worship to the Lord, if you lay yourself on the altar, what's going to be the end game? You won't be overcome with evil, but you'll overcome evil with good. This is what will happen if you are a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice is not conformed to the pattern of this world, so they don't treat others according to the pattern of this world. We overcome evil with good. A precept commentary said this, and I hope it's, I hope it's as impactful to you as it is to me. We must not allow the evil done to us by other people to overcome and overwhelm us. We shouldn't let the evil that is done to us overcome us or overwhelm us. And we must not allow ourselves to be overcome by our own evil responses. In fact, believers need to remember that their own evil is more detrimental to them than the evil that can be done to them. Overcome evil with good. And to overcome evil starts with taking yourself as a living sacrifice and not repaying people. Showing them love, genuine love. Taking care of the needs of those. Giving, being generous, being hospitable. Rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. We don't just need a little help from God because help implies that we have some intrinsic ability to overcome evil on our own. We just need a little push. We don't need a little push. We need 100% of the Holy Spirit living within us for us to overcome evil because we cannot overcome evil on our own. We need the love of Christ to be produced in us. So, 1 John 
5.4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Faith, as many of you know, without works is dead. Let's put our faith to work and begin to genuinely love the brotherhood.